I want to begin this morning's sermon by all of us reading out loud the second of the commandments. So I'm going to ask you to stand as we read together our right God's Word. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. You can be seated. Now, if I polled our 21st century congregation here, I suspect that I would discover that this second commandment would be by far uh, the most popular when it comes to the title, easiest commandment to keep. After all, how many of you happen to have an idol tucked into a niche in the wall at your home where you bow down to it every morning before you leave for work or what you begin to do with the day? Anybody? That's what I figured. None of us have those little idols. So this commandment has to be the easiest for us to keep. But is it really all that simple this morning? Let let me take you back to what we talked about at the very beginning, to this scene right before the Israelites hear the commandments for the very first time. For three days, they have been preparing themselves physically, spiritually, mentally, and emotionally to come to the base of the mountain of God where God is going to speak to them. And as they gather at the base of the mountain, consecrated before God, this roiling cloud settles upon the mountaintop and peals of thunder and lightning flash from the cloud and God speaks and the people are terrified. And when that experience is over, in Exodus 20, verse 20, Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. Here then was God's purpose in this monumental moment, his Exodus 2020 vision, if you please. If you maintain a healthy respect and reverence for the Lord your God, if you have authentic worship before him, that vision of him will help you avoid sin in your daily living. Moses then goes on to receive more details of God's word at that point, and he gives them to the people. And then in Exodus 24, verse 3, it says this, When Moses went and told all of the Lord's words and laws, they, the nation of Israel, these two million people, some two million, responded with one voice, Everything the Lord has said, we will do. And there at that place, and at that moment, Moses set up an altar. And next to the altar, he set up 12 pillars, each one representing the 12 tribes of Israel. This became a memorial of this moment, and there was a sacrifice. Several bulls were sacrificed, and Moses took the blood from those sacrifices. And half of it he sprinkled on the altar, and the other half he sprinkled on this scroll that had the words of God on it, and the rest he sprinkled on the people who were there. It was a covenant that they made before God in his presence that day. And from that moment, Moses went up onto the mountaintop for 40 days where God was going to give him the rest of the law, and he would come down with the tablets of stone. Now, in less than 40 days, the people had forgotten everything 
Uh, Moses had been gone a long time. I mean, 40 days. I mean, that's a long time. So they assumed he was dead. They also, I think, assumed that God was dead for that matter. And so they coerced Aaron into making them a new god, which really turns out to be a warmed-over Egyptian god by the name of Apis. He was a bull, a principal god of the Egyptians of strength and power. Never mind that God had boldly demonstrated his power over such superstition when he sent the plague that, that brought sickness to all the cattle in Egypt and all of the cattle died. You talk about your mad cow disease. There was one for the record books. What irony then. Just after crossing the Red Sea, Moses and the children of Israel had sung, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. He is my God and I will praise him, my father's God, and I would exalt him. And within weeks, They are back to worshiping an idol. Moses comes down off the mountaintop and finds them bowing before a sacred cow. Now, I think part of our problem as human beings is our nature is that we rely so much on our sight, this sense of sight. And a God we can see is easier to follow than a God we can't see. But a bovine, a bull, Come on, everything you've seen, how can something like that lead you in to greatness? Do you have any sacred cows in your life? A sacred cow, which by the way grows out of this whole story that we've been talking about, by definition is a tradition or a belief or a value that you equate to the level of God's Word. Now, sacred cows might make good hamburger, folks, but they are lousy substitutes for God. Could it be that we, too, are guilty of breaking this commandment because we, too, have substituted a lot of things for the grandeur of God? Let's take a look at this commandment. And the first thing I want you to see is the problem that is dealt with in the commandment. Now, you might be thinking as we read through that commandment, well, how, how does this commandment really deal differently than the, than the first one? I mean, what's the, what's the distinction between the first one that says, you shall have no other gods before me, and this one that says, don't make any gods to me? You know, well, that's a, that's a good question. But there is a very important distinction. And I really like, I really like this answer that comes from 17th century preacher Thomas Watson. You'd expect something good from a preacher by the name of Thomas, wouldn't you? Here's what he said. In the first commandment, worshiping a false god is forbidden. In this, however, the second commandment, worshiping the true God in a false manner is forbidden. I like that. We could say it this way. The first one focuses on authentic commitment. The second one focuses on authentic worship. Again, the first details the who of worship. The second details the how of worship. Now, there's basically two prohibitions in this commandment. Don't make, don't bow. The first prohibition, don't make, is actually the word carve. It is the idea of fashioning something out of earthly materials that is to represent God. The worship of God must, be, must never be transferred from the realm of the spirit to the realm of the physical senses. Mr. Bennington was my junior high shop teacher. He was an excellent teacher, and he was an outstanding woodcarver. 
the one Easter sunrise service that stands out in my mind above all other Easter sunrise services I've ever attended was when Mr. Bennington was asked to speak and he took all of his wood carvings to tell the story of Jesus and ended with a hand-carved cross. I've never forgotten that morning. As a matter of fact, it was that morning when I decided, I determined when I grew up, I was going to learn how to be a carver. As a matter of fact, his carving was so good that he carved a donkey that sat on President Kennedy's desk in the Oval Office when he was president. Now, while Mr. Bennington used his talent to honor God, he never carved anything to represent God and certainly never bowed before any of his carvings as if they were God. You see, art is one thing. As a matter of fact, religious art was permitted. It was abundant in the tabernacle and the temple. But the intent here was to prohibit any of that art becoming something that was a substitute for God, something that you would bow down to. Augustine defined idolatry as worshiping anything that ought to be used or using anything that ought to be worshiped. In other words, it's kind of getting our worlds turned upside down. And when Paul said they've substituted worship of the creator for the creation, that's exactly what has happened in so many lives. And did you notice God was really specific in this passage? He says, nothing from the heavens above or the earth beneath the heavens or the water below the heavens. That rules, does, uh, rules out just about everything. I mean, there's, there's no question. Well, you know, can't use a fish, can't use this, can't use that. Some throughout history have seen this statement as a strong symbol. You know, the heavens represent that which is spiritual, the earth that which is earthly, and that which is below the earth, death and, and the grave. And so whether you take it literally or take it figuratively, or it's, it's meant both ways perhaps, God is saying absolutely, absolutely nothing is to ever be substituted to represent the creator that is a part of creation. Now, why do you think that God was so specific about this? Why, why was God so intense about making sure we didn't do this? Well, I, I think there's several good reasons for it. First of all, images, images are powerful things. Uh, words are powerful, but images are powerful. And an image, when you see a picture, sometimes it is indelibly marked in your brain. Take a look at these pictures. Some of them are historic, but all of them are moving. You see these images, and, and you are moved. It, it touches your heart. It, it, it grabs your spirit. It, it causes you to question. You want to know, what? I want to know more about that event. What was happening there? It was such a poignant moment in time. Some of those pictures from history... If you were there, you remember those moments and those are indelibly impressed. And so it's hard to change once you've seen an image. And God knows that if we try to create an image, we, we really take away from him. That's the whole point. For instance, when we create something to represent God, it cheapens his grandeur. I want you to take a look at this picture of the Grand Teton Mountains. Uh, that's uh, uh, shot across, I think, Jenny Lake there at, at the base of the Tetons. That is a gorgeous picture. But if you have ever been to the Grand Tetons, you know that just, that, that can't hold a candle to be in there. 
whenever we were there uh, a few summers ago, uh, you know, I'd drive about 100 yards and we'd stop and take another picture because the clouds had shifted and the sunlight had shifted and, uh, and around every bend or, or there was a branch that kind of framed the mountain. I, I took dozens of pictures of the mountains. When you get home, they all looked the same, but at that moment they didn't because for as valuable as that image is, it, it just simply cannot capture the grandeur of the Grand Teton mountain range because it's more than just what meets the eye. If it was just the eyes, you know, I guess a picture would do, but it's more than meets the eyes. And so when you see a picture of them, it can't compare to the grandeur being there and living in it. And when you try to capture God in an image or a picture, it, it, it takes away from his grandeur. It also limits God in some form or fashion. God is described as being the same yesterday, today, and forever. The ancient of days, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the omnipresent, omniscient God of the ages, all-sustaining and totally self-sustaining, sovereign and without equal. I love this passage from the pen of Isaiah in chapter 55. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. How do you take a limitless God and reduce him to a limited image without destroying his greatness? And the simple truth is you can't. Any image that we try to create of God limits him, and he has no limits. It also localizes God. Anytime you have a statue of God, the natural conclusion is this. When you're near the statue, God is present. When you're far away from the statue, God is absent, out of sight, out of mind. A lot of us would like to treat God that way. Some people treat a church building like that. When I'm inside the church building, I'm closer to God. When I'm away from the church building, I'm, I'm far away from God. God is absent. Nothing could be farther from the truth. That's to make this building an idol. But God isn't local. God isn't limited to a particular place or time. He's timeless and he's, he's everywhere. The psalmist wrote, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. The psalmist writes, Lord, I can't go anywhere, and you're not there. You see, God is not local. He is everywhere. And when I create something to represent him, it suddenly binds him to that place. Why did God do this? Because it reduces God to a comfortable size. <laughs> if I've got an idol I can keep in my pocket, you know, I can manage that. There's a certain amount of control I've got with that. But Paul writes in Ephesians 4, he says, There is one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. There is nothing small about that. And there's nothing about that that I can control. But an idol that maybe even I carved or created, I got control over that. Here's another reason. God reduced, when we create some kind of an image to God, it reduces God's relevance to a particular time and culture. Whenever God is pictured in a cartoon or as a caricature, what do you think of? Isn't that it? You know, always a white robe, always a long flowing 
white beard. That's, when you pick up the comics and you see a picture like that, you immediately know they're talking about God. Now, where do we get that image? I'm not sure, but it's a very similar image to Michelangelo's uh, Sistine Chapel picture uh, of God and the creation of Adam, white robe and flowing gray-white beard type thing. I, it, maybe it's a, uh, a corruption of that particular beautiful piece of art. I, I, I don't know, but and when, you, when you look at that picture too, God looks amazingly Caucasian, doesn't he? Now, now for me, I don't struggle with that because I'm a Caucasian. But if God is pictured as some other race or culture, and I look at that, the first thing that comes to my mind, God's not like me. Can God understand my needs? I, I think that's one of the main reasons why God didn't want him. He is for all people, and we dare not reduce him to a particular time or a particular culture. Uh, every, every year, the uh, United Postal System uh, offers a Christmas stamp. Well, a couple different kinds, but always one of them is a classic piece of art uh, from, from history, and it's always of uh, the Mother Mary uh, and the infant child, Jesus Christ. And I look at these pictures. Now, look at that one there. <clears throat> I don't remember what year that was, but uh, <laughs> does that look like a teenage girl from the Middle East? No. It looks like a lady, a Caucasian lady from the Renaissance period in Europe which is exactly when these paintings were done, and they captured the time and period of the day. But I got to tell you, that picture doesn't do anything for me when I think of Mary and the infant Jesus Christ. You see, anytime we do that, it tends to bring God down to a, a time and place. It dates God like old carpet and off-colored walls. It dates God. We dare not do that but we do that. <laughs> there are dozens and dozens of Jesus dolls, action figures, and bobbleheads on the market today, and nothing cheapens the image of Christ quite like an out-of-proportion figuring with a re repulsive nodding head all the time. You know, we, we've done that, and it, and, it, and it somehow cheapens the whole picture. Now, now, I can imagine some of you at this point in time are starting to worry that the next time you see a picture of Jesus or some kind of a picture of God that you'll have to gouge your eyes out, and, and that, that's to miss the point. The majesty of the Sistine Chapel where Michelangelo painted as an act of worship and adoration of God uh, is, is breathtaking. Or the pictures that you may use in a Sunday school class to teach the stories of Jesus, they are tools to communicate the gospel. The Pieta is an emotionally moving depiction of our crucified Lord, this beautiful statue of the crucified Christ in the lap of Mary. I grew up in a congregation where this picture hung on the back wall every Sunday morning when I walked into the worship center, immediately drawing my mind to Christ. We don't know that Jesus looked like that, but as a child growing up, I knew that when I walked into that building, this was about Jesus we have this picture at home, and I get lost in it when I stand and look. It's called The Road to Emmaus, and can't you just see Jesus talking to these two men on the day of his resurrection, explaining all this, and it says their hearts burned within them. I can just look at that and think, oh, what a moment in time that would be. In a sense, these are tools. These images draw us to the message of the greatest story ever told. They are like memorials to the events of biblical history. 
and God gave us lots of memorials. We know as Americans how powerful memorials can be. This one, whenever you see the picture, the Marine Corps Memorial, draws our attention to a price and a cost for a tiny speck of land in the South Pacific called Iwo Jima. All those who died at that particular moment in time are memorialized in that statue. God did the same thing because he knew that we did well with pictures. So he gave this memorial at the base of the mountain, the 12 pillars, and then he gave them the Passover meal and dozens of others. To us, he has given us the act of baptism, which memorializes the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's given us the Lord's Supper that we participated in just a few minutes ago that reminds us of the death and the suffering of Christ. If we ever become more enamored with the memorial than the God of the memorial, then, then, we are in danger of breaking this commandment. But if God has given us the memorial, if God has ordained beautiful art to point us to our memory, then we use it as tools in order to direct our hearts toward God. Let let, let me tell you one of the more interesting stories that comes out of this time of the Israelites being in the wilderness following their escape from Egypt. In the book of Numbers, on one of those occasions, once again, when the Israelites had well, they had been complaining, they had been griping, they had lost their faith in the whole, uh, whole thing of God. We have them in the desert, and God begins to punish them again. And this time, God sends poisonous snakes into their midst, or allows the snakes come in. And, and as they bite the people, they uh, are suffering the consequences of their sinfulness. And it doesn't take long for the people to realize that they needed to repent, that they were wrong, that they had once again, after time and time and time, abused the grace of God. And so they pray, and God says, I've heard their prayer. I'm ready to take them back. Moses, here's what you do. Strangest thing. Moses, make a brass snake and put it on a staff and hold it up, and then anybody that looks, all they have to do is look at the brass snake and they'll be healed and they'll be spared. Now, that makes absolutely no sense. That is a total expression of faith. And he lifted it up because that took their minds and their eyes off of the problem at the base of their feet. The snakes were at their feet, but if they look up, it's saying, okay, I'm going to trust God. It's an incredible moment in time. By the way, I'm here to tell you that just news of poisonous snakes in the camp would have put me to death. The snakes wouldn't have had to got near me. I'd have been gone. I'd have just been gone. I'd have, been, I'd have been dead. And they looked up at the brass snake, and they were healed. This is one of the few things that Jesus used to even depict his own sacrifice. In the two verses leading up to the John 3.16 passage, this is what Jesus said, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must also be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him, in other words, everyone who has faith to look up to him, may have eternal life. It's a beautiful story. What happened in Numbers was a prelude to what God was going to do ultimately in Jesus Christ. He had him make this snake as a means of encouraging the people's faith. But do you know the end of the story? The Israelites kept the snake, the bronze snake, and they stored it away, and then they began to draw it out. 700 some years later, King Hezekiah comes to the throne in Judah, and the Bible says that he destroyed the bronze snake because the people had started to bow down and worship 
it. What God had used as a miraculous expression of faith had become the object of worship and so undone. To really appreciate the distinction, we need to remember the second prohibition here. And that is, he said, don't make, don't carve. But the second thing he says, don't bow. And that literally means to show respect for. Authentic worship, therefore, means showing the deepest of respect to God and for God. I love the fact that when we are worshiping, each of us can visualize in our hearts and minds the God of eternity. And so when I pray, I don't know what it's like with you, but when I pray, I have this mental image of God on his throne in heaven in all of his splendor and glory, but he's listening to what I have to say. Here's the thing I cannot do, though. I am not at liberty to recreate him in my image and worship only those aspects of him that I find to be pleasing. I cannot discard the image of him as the ultimate judge because, just because that's not a warm and fuzzy picture to me. You know, I'll take the loving and kind image of God, thank you, but I don't want anything to do with that angry image of God. You can't do that, people. You've got to let God be God. He is who he is in all of his splendor and glory, and you can't pick and choose like a smorgasbord what you want God to be. You worship him in all of his splendor and glory and nature. There are no substitutes. We found these pictures. These are other guys. You know, you know what their name is? Every one of those guy is, guys is named Tom Ellsworth. Some of them look reasonably intelligent. You may even like some of those guys more than, more than you like me. I'm just asking, don't, don't, don't substitute those for me. They may be smarter than I am. They may be uh, you know, better looking than I am. They, they, they may have a lot more intelligence uh, and, and degrees than I do. But don't you substitute any one of those for me because that's not me. I don't want them filling any of the areas of my life. You wouldn't want somebody doing that to you. God doesn't want us doing that to him either. You are who you are. God is who he is, and you accept him as that. I don't like the photo on my driver's license either. Just before, the last time I got my license, just before they snapped the shot, I've always smiled normally for, for the, uh, my driver's license, which means when I smile, I usually show my teeth. And I was smiling like that, and right before they snapped the picture, they said, can't show your teeth. And so I'm halfway between trying to figure out what does that mean when they snap the shot. <laughs> you know, I got this kind of cheesy, smirky, you know, I'm, I'm not sure what it is. I always feel every time I have to use it for identification, I feel like I want to say, that's not really who I am. That doesn't really look exactly like, you know, I don't act that way. It's just one of those awkward things. But that's a real picture of me. Imagine then, imagine how much more God is offended when we create him in our image. And we worship the God that we think instead of the God He is. Our worship fails to be authentic when we fail to give God the credit that He is due Him. Author Stuart Briscoe wrote, he said, Do not render to anything that which rightly and exclusively belongs to God. That's why God said, I'm a jealous God. And I know the minute you read that, somebody says, there it is. I knew there was something about God I didn't like, and that's it. Who wants a jealous God? Don't get that picture. This is more like God is zealous to protect his reputation, his purposes, his people, and his image. God is zealous to protect his character and his nature so that people can respond to him in complete truth with no misleading or partial truths hidden. 
And you say, okay, that's all well and good. Why is this important? It's important because there's a promise attached to this commandment. We didn't read all of the commandment, by the way. We only started with the first half. I want you to read the second half with me. Punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, some focused in on the first part and are thinking, seriously? What kind of a God is that? Well, now, hear me out. The promise is both a positive and a negative ring, but we always get hung up on the negative part. We read it as if this is a sadistic God sitting on the edge of heaven, ready to heave lightning bolts at you for something your great-grandfather did. There again is one of those mistaken images of God, God heaving lightning bolts. This is not so much about God's punishment as it is about human nature. I like the way James Smith puts it. He says, those who continue to hate God suffer the consequences up to the fourth generation kind of changes it a little bit when you hear it in that tone, doesn't it? And we've all seen it. It it defies explanation. But if you grow up in a home where you are abused verbally and physically as a child, the odds are greater that you will become a child abuser when you become an adult than not. Doesn't make sense, does it? You'd think if you'd grown up and been treated that way that you'd run as far away from that kind of behavior as you could get. But statistically, the odds are not in your favor that you'll overcome that. And sometimes that can happen three and four generations. A child that grows up in the home of an alcoholic is more likely to become an alcoholic him or herself than not. It's not because God is punishing. It's because this is the way human nature works. And God says, this is what happens. When you hate me, when you disregard what I've told you how to live, this is the consequences of that disregard. But notice the second part. It's 250 times greater. He says, but for those who love me, I will bless up to a thousand generations. Wow. Knowing those two things, both the negative and the positive, just knowing that would cause me to want to examine my behavior to say, what am I doing that will impact generations long after I'm gone? I don't want them to hurt for four generations, I want them to be blessed for hundreds or thousands of generations to come. And it all boils down to your focus, your authentic commitment, and then your authentic worship of God. When He is first, everything falls into place. Let me close with just this simple comparison. You know from history that in 1865, a a spurned actor by the name of John Wilkes Booth, assassinated President Abraham Lincoln in Ford's Theater and forever changed American history. But are you also aware of the fact that a distant cousin of John Wilkes Booth, William Booth, in that same year, 1865, started an organization that would also change history? You know it as the Salvation Army. Two men two different directions, two different consequences. To this day, the efforts of William Booth are still impacting people's lives. 
Your choice. Do you want to worship God in an authentic way, in a holy way? How you view God and his purpose in your life will not only make for authentic worship, but it will make for authentic living. Do you know Jesus Christ is your Savior? If you don't, come to him, and he'll change your life forever. Let's stand and sing.